because I would say I'm fractionalized in-house counsel for everyday people. So they could contact me about any issue that might be going on in their life. You are listening to You Are a Lawyer. I'm Kyla Denagio, a 2015 law school graduate. This podcast was created to share the successes of law school graduates in non-traditional careers or with exciting hobbies. In episode 68, I am speaking with the subscription attorney. This guest is innovating the legal field with subscription-based legal services for freelancers and small business owners. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, today's guest is Matthew Curbis. So welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Happy to be here. Thank you. So you told me that you actually prefer to go by Curbis because there are so many Matthews and Matts in the world, and I love that. <laughs> so Curbis, would you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. I'm a last name first person, as we've established, <laughs> and I'm a practicing attorney in the Chicagoland area. I used to live in the city for about 10 years, went to law school downtown, and during the pandemic had a baby, and family and I moved out to the suburbs, and so that's where I am now. In the last three months, I left a firm to start my own practice, and now I'm running a virtual law practice with an innovative, at least so I've been told, business model. So before we tap into the innovative law practice, which is truly innovative, what area of law were you practicing in when you were with the law firm? Yeah, yeah. So I was primarily a litigator doing okay. insur- insurance defense work. And I, I still very much enjoyed litigation, but I've completely pivoted to transactional law, which I was building up a transactional practice over the last eight years anyway. And I just saw a lot of opportunity there. And with the pandemic and the billable hour, litigation just seemed a lot less feasible for me and also, I think, for the profession. Yeah, when I was in law school, I was looking forward to transactional work. I wanted to work for the EPA or the Army Corps of Engineers in environmental law. Mm-hmm. And then I got into transactional law and realized it was a lot of just more writing <laughs> than I was expecting. And I wanted to talk, but still not be a litigator. So podcasting was perfect. <laughs> um, have you found that with your litigation background, podcasting was an easy transition for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In addition to just starting my own practice, I also have the uh, the Law Subscribed podcast, which is about bringing the subscription model to legal services. And, you know, I've always actually been involved in some kind of performance arts of some kind. Okay. Uh, even going back to high school, I was in the one act plays where it was student written and directed and acted performances. And I'm actually part of a 100 year old tradition of dancing, singing and acting lawyers in Chicago called the uh-huh. Chicago Bar Show. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and I did show choir in college. So I like actually the performing background and having a father who was a theater major, but it sort of helped just even making presentations in school. Like my dad would be critiquing me and saying, you know, make sure you put the right emphasis on the correct syllable and all that. Right. So that helped, I think, more than anything else, just through, through happenstance of being a performer. The podcasting space was just totally opened up to me once I learned more about it. Okay. I think that becoming a parent, having your first child is a really big pivot and a really big kind of eye-opening situation. So would you explain a little bit about billable hours and why you wanted to get away from that? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. I had been playing around with the subscription model for legal services for actually several years. Even the firm I was at was very much open to it, but in a well-entrenched practice area like insurance defense, you know, it's hard to make changes. And so while they were open to it, and I really was grateful to the firm for indulging me, it was for other areas of law that other types of you know business we would bring in. But the firm was really built for the billable hour, and it was built for litigation. 
And so I still had to get my hours in, in addition to launching an innovative practice there. So it was really hard to just build my own practice within a firm, which they totally understood. I mean, it was a very amicable split. And so that played a big part of it as I was sort of, sort of already on that path. But then having the kid, you know, changed a lot. And yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a relationship where, like many millennials these days, both spouses are working. And so while my wife was able to take off uh, a little bit of time uh, from her company when we had the baby, it was in the middle of the pandemic. So we're both working from this little one bedroom in Chicago yeah. uh, from home. And we now have a human being that is life depends on us. And I think I would have done this no matter what our context was, but, but especially with that context, I was helping out 24-7. I mean, it was yeah. like equal parenting. You know, we chose to breastfeed our child. You know, everyone will do what they want to do. But um, other than that, I helped, you know, equally with, um, with all the, the child rearing duties. And as my wife went back to work and as business started to pick up and then we started to get out of the pandemic, now it's more of like an endemic. But I just realized that that old life of going into the office every day and billing hours it just did not mesh with wanting to be a very involved father. And in the past, you know, maybe where there wasn't two spouses working, that was more doable. But even like just deep in my core, I feel like I would have been missing out on something if that were the case. And I just really wanted to be involved with my kid's life as, as she was growing up. In this profession, starting your own solo practice is a well-entrenched thing. And it's a well-known thing. There's a lot of resources on how to do that. And so it was, even though I wanted to innovate on the model, I think that it's a little less risky as an attorney to leave a firm and start your own practice than maybe in some other professions. So all of that sort of coalesced and I decided to take the plunge. Okay. And that is completely full time, right? Because you said you started looking into it when you were working with the firm as well. That's right. Right. Okay. I mean, whatever full time means when you're an entrepreneur, right? you know, 20 hours of the 24. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> But I've got distinction because in what world does leaving a nine to five, quote unquote, job to run your own business give you more time for your family? Oh, well, <laughs> like that is so funny to me that yeah. that's such a common thread with lawyers that starting your own business, even with us joking about working 20 out of 24 hours is less work than working for a law firm. Yeah. And, and there's no question that it's more work but it's the type and style of work and it's the context of work. Sort of the way I've structured my firm is really leaning heavily into technology. So I'm a true solo. I don't have staff. I don't have contractors. I'm a true solo. So I depend on technology, right? So I use Calendly. It's probably one of my favorite tech tools. Mm -hmm. And I do not let clients schedule times with me to talk. So yeah. in, the, in the early mornings, as we get the kid off to daycare, Whenever we leave to pick up the kid from daycare, I want to make sure I have quality time with the family during those hours. And then I do allow some time on the weekends for clients to schedule calls with me or Zoom meetings, which actually is great for them, right? Because I'm not going to be available 24-7 during the week because I'm only available when I let myself be available. Yeah. And then I time block in my calendar times for me to be working on a project for a client or doing some research or doing some marketing or, you know, making sure all the finances are, are up to speed. Right. So so then nobody could book time with me during those time blocks. So I just really focus on controlling my calendar. And while I might be putting in more time in my own business than I was working at a I mean, what is a traditional nine to five in a legal profession unless you're in house? But, you know, I'm putting in more time than that type of work. I'm in control of it because I'm my own boss. Yeah, definitely. Did you learn how to time block from billing your time at the law firm or was it something you carried over from studying in undergrad or in law school? Uh, no, no. It's totally just my consumption of entrepreneurship 
okay. like media and just content, right? So I'm deep, deep in the weeds of like listening to entrepreneurship and innovative podcasts and, mm-hmm. and I'm subscribed to a number of uh, newsletters and, and I'm just absorbing as much as I possibly can about being a, a business owner and an entrepreneur because, well, first of all, I, I do like representing them, but also as one myself now, I just... You know, law school doesn't teach you how to do that. It teaches you how to think like a lawyer, which works. And I've come around on that a little bit. But since law school is so lacking in that area, I've just consumed as much as I can about just running a business and how to be efficient and and all that. And I came across time blocking. It's also called like block scheduling. There's all different things. My actual first attempt at it was in our family on the weekends. Of course, we abandoned this pretty quickly with a little one. But uh, the idea was, you know, oh, well, block schedule chores and things like that. And and we did that for a little bit. But it's hard with the little one growing up so fast and things changing and her schedule changing. So, so we kind of abandoned that. But that was our first attempt at it as a family. And I learned from that experience to apply it to my own business. And when you are running your own business, it's really easy to be completely in control of everything, right? So, so I will go into my calendar. And if I anticipate something's going to take about an hour, I will block an hour of time for that task. And as I do it more and more, if it's a repetitive task, like, you know, making sure I'm balancing my budget and all that, well, if I'm getting faster and faster and more efficient at that, then maybe I'll go from an hour to 45 minutes, then 30 minutes. And now I'm able to do that once a week in 15 minutes, right? I'm able to make sure everything's square because of some software that I'm using for that too. Uh, and because I don't take cash and I'm, I use Stripe and I only take credit cards and debit cards, right? So mm-hmm. it's easy for me to to manage that. So so think little things like that. So now I know I, I only need to block maybe 20 minutes because I like to give myself a little bit of a cushion. And so that's, yeah, that's that's essentially the idea. Like if I have a real estate closing with a client or I'm in the middle of attorney review for a real estate contract, I'll maybe block out an hour to go through the contract, make sure everything's good, get the letter prepared to send to my client for their review so that they could book a time with me so we could talk about it. Okay. I hope the audience is learning from it. But I asked that question really for me because (laughs) when I was in law school, I used to have a really detailed schedule. You know, if contracts is Monday and Wednesday, Sunday and Tuesday, I'm scheduling time to review before and et cetera. And then now I just live by multiple calendars and a checklist every day. Right. So I had an alert that went off an hour before I met with you. I had an alert that went off 24 hours before I'm on the phone with you to say, hey, don't forget that's coming you know, go through your stuff. But I think block scheduling or time blocking would actually be beneficial. So thank you for explaining that. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. I'm, I'm a big advocate of it. Yeah. And as everyone comes around on that kind of thinking and, and scheduling, I think there'll also be a lot more understanding with, I don't expect to just call my attorney and get them on the phone right away, right? Which is yeah. why I have all my clients book time with me. It's, that's the way that I, I handle it. Even, even inbound, even prospective callers. I mean, you can leave me a message, but I even say in my voice message, you know, go to my website. On the very first page, there's a schedule an introductory call button. Click on that and schedule a yeah. time to talk with me when you know you will get me on the phone so we could we can meet each other, right, yeah. or on Zoom. So it's all about scheduling in advance. And, and another thing about time blocking, this is actually a, an absolute key to it, is if you use apps like Calendly, you could choose how far in advance somebody's able to book with you. And so I give myself a 24-hour buffer period. So I know at the end of every day, no one can schedule time with me for the next day mm-hmm. because I've blocked that out. So I could schedule every day in advance, and I try to. I haven't been as good about this 
but I do have it time blocked. <laughs> and that is to schedule a week in advance if I can. But it's kind of hard to do that. I can schedule things like doing my finances on, you know, every Friday at this in the same 15 minute, 20 minute period. But I haven't figured out a, a good method for that yet. But at the end of every day, I time block time blocking my next day. And I know yeah. no one has, could schedule any time with me. So it's just about controlling your calendar and really leveraging tech tools to make sure you have no surprises the next day if you can. I try to talk to lawyers about this a lot, try to get them to, to understand you know, the benefit of it. And they go, well, what if my client has an emergency? And I get that. That could definitely happen. And I am working on problem solving that myself. But if you do a good job as a fractionalized in-house counsel, which is essentially what I am, mm -hmm. then you could help your clients avoid emergencies because, and this goes to the billable hour, if they're not afraid to call you, and if you have a subscription model like I do, and they're already paying for it for that time, then they're going to call you and they're going to develop a relationship with you. And you could properly advise them in advance so they don't do things that create emergencies. Yeah. And so you could hopefully avoid your clients having emergencies like that. And you know what this sounds like to me? Having your schedule planned for the next day, time blocking it, all of, it sounds like stress and anxiety management. Oh, yes. <laughs> you don't have to wake up in the morning and see that three people have added things to your calendar for that day. And you're like, what? No, now you're throwing off my entire schedule I already had. Exactly. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. I love that. Yeah, so, very astute. That's, yeah, that, you're absolutely right. So I want to talk about what made you go to law school. Uh, we'll jump into that real quick and then we'll yeah. start talking about the Law Subscribe podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, this is great. Yes, I actually think about this a lot because I will still speak to high school and college students who mm -hmm. are considering careers in law. And so this is something I talk about a lot. So the main reason I went to law school is I had no idea what I wanted to do. I went to college undecided. And I really wanted to major in philosophy, but I didn't think you could get a job with that. Like, what am okay. I, I going to do? You know, sell philosophy, open a store and sell philosophy. This was before content creator was a job that people right. could do. <laughs> <laughs> so I still signed up for a philosophy class because I thought, you know, oh, yeah, I still want to take some courses in it if I, if I can, even though I, I still wasn't sure what I wanted my major to be. And then in my philosophy class, the instructor who was getting his PhD in philosophy, it was like a logic class. Three or four weeks in, he was like, well, if you're enjoying this class, you know, I should let you know. And of course, now in hindsight, I know he was, this is because I'm sure the department wanted people to sign up as philosophy majors, but he made the pitch to us where he said, hey, if you like this class, you have to take more logic courses as a philosophy major, which will help you on the LSAT if you were considering a career in law. And like a light bulb went off for me. I was like, whoa, you know, my, my best friend from high school really wanted to be a lawyer and we have a lot in common. Like I never really thought about myself being a lawyer. And then I did, I went to the Career Development Center. I, I read up on what, it, you know, what it was to be a lawyer and all the different things about it. And I was like, yes, I was like, holy moly. Like, thank you, philosophy instructor. I'll never forget his name. It was Gwaki Han. Okay. And uh, I was like, thank you, Gwaki Han. And, uh, and, and then I, from then on out, like three, four weeks in, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. While it was really expensive and I wish it wasn't, and that's like, you know, I'm still paying off student loans, right? I'm almost 10 years into this thing. It was definitely the right path for me. So I got very fortunate that, that you know, I got that instructor who sort of showed me the, the path of how to, you know, how to major what I wanted to major and, you know, pursue a career that I could really enjoy. And I, I really have. Yeah. A professor sparks the interest. And then when you were in law school, did you know that you wanted to be a litigator? Or no, I think you said you wanted to do transactional. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to do transactional law, but every single professor or or like judge for the trial ad classes, they were like, oh, you got to be a litigator. You're so good, like on your feet and, and everything. And, and 
you know, even though one of the partners I worked with at my last firm, you know, we had our disagreements about things, but one of the things he always complimented me on all the time is my ability to think on my feet, right? To be up there, you know, in front of a judge, to know my facts, to know my case law, and be able to adapt on the fly as needed, right? And so I was a really good litigator, but I always wanted to do transactional law. And I always wanted to negotiate really important deals and represent people and advise people and you know, and with litigation, it's so much of a zero-sum game. You know, we try to fix that with alternative dispute resolution and all that. But if you go to trial, it's you win or you lose, you know. And, and certainly there's a gradient to how much you win or lose and how you define winning and losing changes. You know, if you get, if they ask for, you know, a multi-million dollar verdict and they only get awarded 100000 at trial, that's a win for an insurance mm-hmm. defense attorney, right? And, of course, we did have some trials where we got a zero verdict because a lot of what I dealt with was fraud-related cases. Um, not always the plaintiff who is committing the fraud, but sometimes the the medical doctors that they saw. So I was really good at it. And the teachers and the judges were right. But I always wanted to do a transactional practice. And and something that I learned from a transactional attorney who was a mentor of mine in law school was that, well, if you want to be a transactional attorney, you could still pursue that later in life. And being a litigator in the beginning can actually make you a better transactional attorney. Because when the you-know-what hits the fan, as a former litigator, you will know what's going to happen in court, which will allow you to better negotiate on behalf of your client before you get there or even help resolve a dispute with a potential breach of contract before suit is filed. And that has absolutely been true in my experience. Okay. From that experience to where you are now, where you get to completely control your time as an entrepreneur, it sounds like they're almost like stair steps, like you had to go through that to get to where you are now. Yeah. And I had no idea Mm -hmm. that I would do that. Right. But I've found ways to make sure that nothing was wasted time. Yeah. And that this just reminds me, this is why I called the podcast. You are a lawyer, because I truly believe everything that you touch and go through after law school is going to be through the eye of a lawyer. (laughs) Like, I don't care if you stop practicing, never practice and just run a food truck. You're still going to always remember the stuff that you learned in law school. Because it just, it completely changes your brain. (laughs) It it does. It is definitely rewiring someone's brain going to Mm -hmm. law school without question. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the Law Subscribe podcast and the subscription attorney, LLC, which came first, the podcast, the business? Yeah. So definitely the podcast. I was running for the top seat in the ABA's Young Lawyers Division. And for those of you who are in law school or thinking of law school, listening to this podcast. The ABA is short for the American Bar Association. It's the largest professional trade association of attorneys in the country. And and I was chair of the law student division. So it was kind of like being president of America's law students, of at least the ABA accredited law yeah. schools. And I traveled the country and I got to know what law students thought what their biggest concerns were. And it was all like, how do I get a job to pay down these student loans? Like, I don't even care about anything else. And so I always very involved with the ABA and I continued to hold many leadership roles for several years after that. And I decided to run for the same seat, but for the Young Lawyers Division. And my whole platform was, was essentially based around providing real value to young lawyers through the association. And one of those ways was changing what we do and making it so that we help teach lawyers how to implement the subscription model and innovative billing practices for their law firms. And not everyone is a private practice attorney in the ABA, but it was definitely only the highest percentage of members and potential members. And there's already a lot of programming for other types of you know, government attorneys and in-house counsel and all that, right? And as I was writing copy for my website, I decided that I was going to call that like section of my website Law Subscribed because I thought it was catchy. 
And then I was like, hey, that's really good. I'm going to I'm going to get the domain for that just in case. <laughs> so I got lostsubscribe.com and that was many years ago now. And and then after I lost that election because people thought it was really cool, but they're like, huh? Like they didn't really get it. So I have I was like, OK, I have a lot of educating to do. And I was certainly not the first attorney to think about applying the subscription model. There are attorneys who I follow in their footsteps and stand on their shoulders who have been doing it before me. I'm doing it in my own way that's unique from them, but it has been used for niche practices uh, before to great success, yeah. uh, particularly in the trademark and nonprofit space. So I'm applying it in more of like a general practice model, which is new. So I still wanted to do the things that I wanted to do if I were elected and had all the resources of the American Bar Association to implement, but I didn't have those resources anymore. It was just me. And so what's a really great way to still do that is a podcast, right? And I was on the Young Lawyers Division's founding podcast team. And so I was the occasional guest host and guest, and I would host this segment called the Financial Wellness Minute on that podcast. It's called Young Lawyer Rising. It's on Legal Talk Network. And so I learned a lot from the Legal Talk Network folks on how to run a podcast and how to do all these things and backup recordings and you know making sure you're in a good you know sound area and you have a good mic and all these all these things I wouldn't have learned before so that when we'd have a guest that we'd be interviewing I could help them through it and and I'd listen to them because uh, usually they'd have a producer on every interview and they'd explain things to them and I just took crazy notes. Yeah. So by the time I realized, okay, I lost the election, but I still want to get the word out there because I still want to have a positive impact on the profession, I decided to start the podcast. And then eventually I decided I had to practice what I was preaching. And so I, I left my law firm and I started Subscription Attorney LLC, which, which is my law firm. Okay, very cool. So... Subscription Attorney LLC is the business and you call yourself the subscription attorney. And so what does that mean to have an attorney with a subscription model? Does this mean that you are on retainer for every client? Does it mean that I can call you when I have problems? You know, not emergency stuff. We already established that. But like, <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah, yeah. And so just to be clear, if you're not on my website, I encourage everyone go there, subscriptionattorney.com. And while I don't want you to steal any of my copyright and any of my you yeah. know, trademarked stuff and, and all that, like the model and my engagement agreement and my pricing is all transparent. It's all on my website. And that's because that's what I want for clients. I want potential clients to be able to see exactly what it's going to cost them to hire me and what they're getting for it. And I also want other attorneys to look at the model and be like, hey, I could put my own spin on this and I want them to be able to see everything. So some subscription models for attorneys out there, they kind of hide things behind, okay, first you have to sign up and then I'll really show you all my engagement agreements and pricing and all that. But to answer one of your, your questions, which is a really important one, is, uh, you know, are they just on retainer all the time? The answer is no. And my engagement agreement is called an engagement agreement, not a retainer agreement specifically for that reason. It is not a retainer, which is in the legal profession, especially for the law students who are listening. Um, it is where somebody gives you a certain amount of money and you bill against that amount of money. Uh, and then any money that um, you don't, bill against it belongs to your client, so you have to keep it in a separate account. Um, I have an engagement agreement, and when my clients pay me, it is an earned fee immediately because because it's about what are they getting for the $20 a month. So if you're on my website, you'll see it's $19.99, right, because I'm communicating to consumers, my potential clients, the way they're used to being communicated with when it comes to pricing. So what do they get for $20 a month? For the most part, they get access. That's basically what they get. They get access to a limited part of my calendar where they could schedule a time to talk with me and, and ask me questions. They get access to the client portal where they could 
and I use a client portal instead of email with my clients because it better preserves the attorney-client privilege because email is unencrypted. And frankly, I think every attorney who's using email to send confidential communications with their client is committing malpractice. Not that anyone would actually you know, pursue that, but I think they're on the cusp of it. So I use a client portal only, and my clients could only communicate with me in writing through my client portal. And so they could send me a message anytime. They get access to messaging me anytime, and I will message them back, at least right now, usually within about 48 hours. And if I need to research an issue for them, I do not bill for that research because what I do is I, I don't like to repeat anything if I don't have to, especially as a general practitioner. So I will not only do the research and answer their question, but I will take out personally identifying information and turn it into a, a useful like resource document that I put in what I call my knowledge base, which yeah. all my subscribers also have access to. So you're a tenant or a landlord and you have some kind of question about can I withhold my rent for such and such a reason, you know, I have an answer like that right, that they could go read. And maybe their answer is a little bit more nuanced than that. That's why they could then, after messaging me, and I maybe point them in the direction of that, that knowledge base answer I've already provided, then they can schedule a time to talk with me and I don't have to cover everything because right. they've had access to my knowledge base. So they get access to that knowledge base. And, oh, and the last thing is they get access to below market flat fee pricing. So the reason yeah. I undercut the market on like, say, real estate transactions, which is primarily flat fee for attorneys in Illinois who practice residential real estate, I undercut what my flat fee is because I'm only offering that uh, below market flat fee rate to my subscribers, right? Okay. And so they get access to all those things, access to all those things as a subscriber. So since they're getting immediate value for their subscription amount, it's an earned fee. Yeah. Uh, so it is an engagement. And then if you're at a level above that, well, if you're the $100 a month subscribers, you get access to my entire calendar. And instead of getting access to a limited flat fee services, you get access to all my flat fee services. So that's how I'm able to ethically, I think ethically, because this is all very innovative, but I'm trying mm -hmm. to be as by the book and ethical as I possibly can be. I can ethically charge more for that because you get access to my entire open availability on my calendar where, I, where I'm available instead of just a limited chunk of time for the $20 a month subscribers and you get access to all of my flat fee services. So it's a great, like if you're a business client, and instead of subscribing at $1,500 a month right away, you could start at the $100 a month and you could do all of the flat fee services of the bundled things you would get as a small yeah. business subscriber. You could do them a la carte at first. If you like them, then you could sign up at the higher amount. And so the, and the reason I charge, yeah, I charge more for those higher amounts is I bundle in my flat fee services or subscription add-on services to those higher amounts they're bundled in as part of those packages okay so is the subscription package is it a national service like i am in ohio could i hire you to to do a real estate transaction with me here or would you outsource that or make a referral to someone that you know in ohio great question if you were transacting here in illinois yes i could okay. represent you even though you're outside of the state because you're transacting in the state in which i'm licensed however um, if you are, you know, if you come across my website, and this has happened already, when um, you're outside of the state and you're transacting outside of the state, then I would refer you to an attorney who could help you in the state in which you're transacting or residing or the state that's relevant for you. So it's still good to have like a good network of other attorneys who niche down their practices because I'm like fractionalized in-house counsel. Mm -hmm. So if, if something gets too complicated for an in-house attorney at a company, they hire outside counsel. It's kind of like that. I'll find the, the other attorney to refer them. And I prefer attorneys who have the subscription model or flat fees because that's what my clients are used to, right? And they understand what you're doing as well. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. They know what they're getting for what price they're paying and it's not a black box. Okay. 
So for everyone that doesn't know, Curtis keeps saying in-house. He's fractional, fractionalized or fractured in-house counsel. In-house means working with the corporation or company or business, right? So we would not be signing up for the subscription attorney for a family law matter or for an adoption matter or for something that is outside of a business formation corporation type thing with it sounds like the exception of real estate because you said you do real estate transactions as well i would even make the analogy that i'm making to fractionalized in-house counsel even more broad and nebulous than that right so like because because i would say i'm fractionalized in-house counsel for everyday people so they could contact me about any issue that might be going on in their life. And I'm, I'm just like an in-house attorney is really just a general practitioner, uh, but they are for that business. Like when I use the term fractionalized in-house, I really am using it more metaphorically than literally. Okay. And, and so while I do focus on the business side of things, because frankly, that's where a lot of the money is to be made for a new solo practitioner, yeah. um, I would be just happy having you know, one to 2,000 clients sign up at $20 a month and I just handle everyday things for them. Like one of the things I least expected to advise a client on was a pet groomer agreement, a one-page contract (laughs) that they wanted to get their dog's haircut that their groomer was going to make them sign, right? People in society, we come across contracts all the time and so it's just like it's ever-present, right? But certainly like businesses can afford to hire me more than everyday people, but that's one of the reasons why I tried to make my pricing as affordable as possible at the $20 a month level. But I will do, well, I don't do anything litigation. I will do um, like some family law, like I do prenuptial and postnuptial agreements, right? I do some estate planning, which has some overlap with um, with some family law matters, depending on, you know, if there is like a prenuptial agreement, right? So, but, but if it comes to the point of litigation, that's when I will have to refer out. Okay. So on your biography, you did mention that, that it's legal counsel for everyday people. And you gave some examples of freelancers, you know, small business owners, things like that. Are there special issues that a freelancer would go through that they would not be able to hire a typical attorney and have one one retainer, which is what would make the subscription attorney services more attractive for them? Yeah, I mean, mostly they're completely priced out of the market. You know, they're a freelancer. They might be making 50 bucks an hour not 250 to a thousand dollars an hour so how are they going to afford an attorney in the traditional billable hour model right it's not going to happen and then you know now there are a lot of actual like law firms or solo practitioners like me who are productizing legal services and taking the contracts that they offer and selling forms on their website which is actually really useful for freelancers or gig workers or you know people who are engaged in in different types of contracts, wedding vendors, this is a huge mm-hmm. space for that. And so the problem with that is, is they're not actually getting legal advice, they're getting forms. And it's better than going to LegalZoom and it's better than going to these other form websites because here you know the attorney who's making the forms, right? Yeah. And they're usually also representing people in that space and they update their forms. First of all, my advice to them would be don't sell these forms, sell a subscription and make sure they get access to the forms from the subscription. Then you get recurring right. revenue, right? So that's like my business <laughs> advice to those attorneys uh, who are doing that. Um, so so that's a good, but that is a good middle ground, right? And then for the subscription, you could say you could buy my form, you know, for X amount for flat fee for like, it's a little bit higher, or you could buy my, uh, buy a subscription for Y amount, which is much less per month than the than the flat fee cost of the form. But then in addition to that subscription, you also get access to me, the attorney, right? And so there's, there's a business model there for that. For $300 a month as a freelancer, that's a month, not an hour. Most other attorneys that have to pay yeah. per hour, you get three contracts a month 
for me to draft or review, not negotiate. Negotiate is another $200 a month package, but if you're at the higher business level, if you're a business level subscriber, uh, which is $1,500 and up a month, that negotiation is built in for all the contracts that are included in that package. And it explicitly says so on my website. So I will draft and review con up to three contracts per month for you as a freelancer. And that's included because I want recurring business. I want these freelancers to know that they can count on me because I'm essentially a freelancer, right? Like I'm a solo practitioner, right? A solopreneur. So I have a lot in common with freelancers, which is why I'm really targeting that market. And I want to make it as super affordable as possible and for them to protect themselves as much as possible by actually having competent counsel they could call and talk to and help them with their contracts instead of just trying to adapt a contract on their own from client to client when the facts of that situation might be very different. And most freelancers don't need me to, to negotiate with someone on their behalf because they're oftentimes working with lay people. So think about wedding you know, uh, vendors, they're, you know, photographers. They're, if they're not freelancers, they might be small business owners, right? But it, that's kind of still the right package for like a photographer for who's a wedding vendor, right? And, and they're not negotiating with the company. Sometimes they might be, but they're really just negotiating with everyday people. So they don't need me for that. That's why I have that very affordable package for them. And what is so innovative about your services is the fact that, for one, you said that a freelancer or someone with a small business would be priced out, but also they just don't have access, right? Let's say me as a podcaster, I decide to record with someone, they never show up and I want to sue them, <laughs> right? I can't just call big name law firm and say, hi, I want to talk to someone. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. You know, who are you? Where did you get my number from? How much money are you paying? It's, there's a whole thing to it. Right. So, but no, most people, if you have a business, if you're a freelancer, you should have access to forms, access to attorneys, access to legal counsel, because you never know when you'll need it. You, you didn't ask a specific question that made me sort of give this answer, but what you're seeing right now is like an answer that I give all the time to like yeah. what inspired the subscription model, which in part was my involvement in the ABA and there's being such an emphasis on access to justice and trying mm -hmm. to solve that problem. So make no mistake that you're absolutely right. This is an access to justice solution. It is not the solution. It does not solve people who can't even afford $20 a month, which is too many people, at least in our country. Right. But this model can help solve that access to justice problem. Yeah. And so it is absolutely about that. I'm a small business owner. I have an LLC for the podcast. Well, technically it's an LLC for, for a ton of stuff, right. <laughs> but the podcast was founded under that. And the Small Business Association website, a small business is like less than $2 million a year. Like someone could be making really big money and still not have access to a regular attorney with a big law firm and all this stuff. So audience, I hope you're like, wow, I had no idea because yeah, <laughs> it is an access to justice issue. I do the same thing, by the way. I have an LLC that my podcast is a brand under. I call it the Kerbisverse, like Metaverse, but my last name, nice. the Kerbisverse LLC. <laughs> nice. I have to yeah. do that, the Bananaverse. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Let's start a movement there. So, Kerbis, is there anything else that you wanted to share with the audience about how you felt about law school, why you created the subscription attorney, you know, anything you want to share? Yeah, yeah, it would be law school gets a lot of flack for just teaching you how to think like a lawyer because it doesn't teach you how to run a law firm or a law practice or how to actually practice law in however what, what way you're practicing law. But it does a really good job at teaching you how to think like a lawyer and that 
And, and I mean, that concept is so lampooned that there's even a podcast called Thinking Like a Lawyer by Above the Law, which is like my favorite legal podcast, okay. even even more favorite than my own that I have. That's a legal <laughs> podcast. But it does a really good job at that. And I have come to appreciate that more and more the longer I practice. But the takeaway from that is if you want to pursue a career in law, make sure that in college or outside of the classroom, you're learning everything about business and running a business as much as you can, because you will not learn that in law school. And that's useful no matter what area of law you go into practice. It is. I completely agree. Well, thank you so much, Curvis. This was awesome. And everyone, I will have Curvis's information in the show notes, including website um, and LinkedIn account if you want to reach out to him. Thank you. Uh huh. You have a great day. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to You Are a Lawyer. New episodes are released every Thursday. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and tell a friend to listen to the podcast. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation.